week, we've got Matt Workman on the show, better known to some as Cinematography DB, the YouTube channel that's been dormant for a little while, but I really learned a lot from. How's it going, Matt? How's it going? Thanks for having me. Obviously, you do so much more than being a YouTuber. Like Maybe that's how other people listening might have discovered you, but you have very big projects on the go right now. You've been, you've been working extremely hard. It's been it's been a fun few years here and crazy. Like it's not. I don't know anybody else that's kind of gone through your path. And just for anybody that doesn't know your work or hasn't seen what you've been doing, the big thing that you've been uh, the recently released and you've been working on and talking about is Cinetracer, which is a well, what you, you describe it. It's it's a previs game program. What do you call it? Yeah, we're still working on the pitch for it. One that Epic Games themselves has mentioned. It's not official. We can't say this just yet. Is sort of like the Fortnite creative for professional filmmakers, if that makes sense. You'd have to know what Fortnite is, but maybe if you don't, you know, Minecraft Creative, where you're building things in a video game and it's all fun and cutesy and cartoony. We're building a version of that where it's fun to build houses and put people in there, but we have real, realistic cameras and lights and it's designed for, like, the professional filmmakers. That's kind of the, the vision of it. Well, and at a glance, I mean, extremely realistic. I think prob- probably from your perspective, I'm sure you can see ways that Maybe it doesn't always reflect reality exactly as it is, but as a casual viewer, when I just glance at a scene, I'm like, that looks pretty real. That looks like what actual lights do. And it lets cinematographers, photographers, I mean, it's mostly cinematographers, right? I'm sure. Photography doesn't usually go through this complex of lighting situations, but before you arrive on set, you can basically put all your lights in places in a digital set, see how they're going to fall on your subjects, do camera moves. What else can it do? That's the primary use, yeah. And we have like a, we're working on it right now, actually, but a storyboard system. So you don't have to, you know, take a screenshot, go to Photoshop, take a screenshot, go to Photoshop. It all happens within the app, but you've nailed it exactly. And that's, you know, all Epic Games who makes uh, Unreal Engine, which is how I make it. They are just leading the charge with making everything look beautiful and realistic and combined with all the other partners I'm working with, it's like they're doing all the heavy lifting and I kind of connect the dots and build the brand and product for like a specific group of people, which is filmmakers at first. And it's starting to go much, much wider, which wasn't wasn't the idea and the vision for it. But I think a lot of people like the idea of like, oh, let's put a photorealistic person person in a, you know, realistic virtual environment and then photograph that. There's a lot of I think a lot of people would, would like trying that and would have fun doing it. So I'll, I'll be open right from the beginning. I haven't tried it yet. And not because I don't think it's amazing. I just feel like I haven't had time. But All good. I think it's amazing. I mean, the 20-year-old version of me, this is what I would have been doing instead of playing video games. Like, I, you know, spend a little less time in Tony Hawk and spend a lot more time feeling kind of productive and playing a sort of game in a way. That's something I've been sort of trying to drive home as I talk to young people going into the same areas that, of work that I'm in is how much I regret getting really skilled at totally useless things when I was young. Like all that time that I committed to just playing a game, pick a better hobby and pick something that, you know, could turn into like a kind of a passion project. And I don't know, young people out there, this is a pretty cool thing to get started with. And before you were doing Cine Designer, what's the high level difference between the two? Right. Yeah. So right now we're doing like the video game version and it's, you know, slash app and can go on like any computer and soon tablets and it's standalone. So you just buy just that. And before that, before I knew how to make games and apps, I was making plugins. So you would have had to use something like Maya. We have the plugin for Cinema 4D. So it required you to buy a very expensive traditional 3D animation program and then buy Cine Designer. 
and then also have to learn Cinema 4D. So you had to, I had to teach people like full on 3D animation just to be able to like make a reasonable image. And it's like, if you were a very focused student, it might take you about a week before your first nice image came out. So that's a, it's a pretty rough curve and it, it takes a lot of time, but people were, people were into it. That was the only way to do it back then. But now it's, you could turn it on and you should have a nice image in like the first like five seconds, basically. So it's yeah. a, it's been a big change. Crazy. Where do people get it right now if they're interested? Uh, it's on steampowered.com. So it's the, the gaming platform that you may or may not have heard of. <laughs> heard of Steam, yes. Yeah, for like Counter-Strike and, and whatnot. And it's on there. It's Cinetracer. Awesome. No, I'm super excited about it. I will someday try it. But there's some people that won't have tried it. So I'd love to, I feel like I could learn a lot from you because you must go through a lot to, to get to the point where you can kind of build this stuff. Before development, you were doing commercial cinematography. Is that right? Yep. I was in New York City for about 10 years. I started in music videos and loved hip-hop music videos as a consumer. And I was like, what if this was my job? And I pursued that for five years and made it my job. And then, you know, a certain a certain point in time, like, I started to get into, like, pretty big music videos right as the DSLR revolution first hit, like the, the 5D Mark II and then the 7D. Like, mm-hmm. right as those dropped, I was just getting traction into, like, big music videos and then that that changed that industry quite a bit. And New York City became less favorable for that. And it very much moved to Los Angeles and other things. And then I moved into commercials uh, from there. New York City was is an amazing place for commercials. So I was very fortunate to land in the kind of like Viacom MTV VH1 family and was able to transition into like full-on commercials from there. Yeah, and you've brought a lot of that to your YouTube channel. Like that knowledge of here's how high-level stuff is done, which... I, I, I've been finding really valuable. I've also been, um, I mean, since you've been publishing a bit less on YouTube lately, I've been forced to find other avenues. And uh, so, yeah, Wandering DP podcast I've been recommending often. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's, for a lot of people that are at, say, my level or starting out, the hurdle of going from, you know, slightly modifying your natural light to completely shaping light from scratch it's like a, it's a, it's really challenging thing to get over. You don't own all this gear. You don't necessarily own enough lights to fully light a room on day one. And nobody's necessarily going to trust you on day one to hire you as a DP when you haven't worked with this step before. So like getting to that first step is something that like a lot of people aspire to or haven't been at yet. But I think understanding the concepts of how you work once you have a full lighting truck or, you know, just a, a larger kit and a lot more options I think it's super valuable to get those concepts. And as I've been sort of watching what higher level people do, I've found a lot of ways to apply that to the lower end work that I'm doing or the lower budget work that I'm doing. Yeah, definitely. I, I wish I could, I, I want to go back like to do more like content where we, we talk about that high level stuff. And I, I think, you know, I'm trying to get back into YouTube again because I think Cinetracer is going to be a tool that I can use to show that stuff. Because like you said, it's like, it's it's a it's expensive to even teach it. I don't know, like the sort of like towards the end of when I was doing YouTube seriously, I was with with Chapman, who makes like you know the high end highest end dollies and cranes in LA, and we're like, it's like, hey, let's produce some content. We made like a techno crane, well, they're mm-hmm. called hydroscopes <laughs> for 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 Chapman. We're like, let's make a tutorial on this, and then let's uh, let's do a dolly video too. So we just kind of like bang these out, and it's like we got this stuff for free. But if you look at it's like, okay, so we had an Alexa, we had like a Zeiss Zoom, we had a, I had, a, I had like a professional dolly grip, I had a grip team, I had a first AC, yeah. like I had a full crew. So like, because it was Chapman and because of the event 
you know, we, we were able to get those people for free. But if, like, if we're just going to film this tutorial, it's like that costs as much as a real shoot. And that's not sustainable on, you know, on YouTube. That's a, that's a tricky thing to try to keep going with. So I hope that with Cinetracer, because it's a little bit more real time, that I can make the time to get back into, into YouTube. And that's actually how I found you. I, just, I, was like, I was like, hey, like, you know, who's, you know, who's making cinema content right now? And then you know, also tech content is, uh, is my crossover as well. And, and that's how I found your YouTube channel. Sweet. Yeah, that is the intersection that I'm into and people that I try to bring on here. I feel like, though, it, I'm always maybe limiting the audience a little bit with cinema stuff because I know so many more people are photographers in the world. Like, there are just less people making videos than there are making photos. But I, I'm trying to push cinematic, yeah, cinematic techniques onto photographers because I feel like they could be learning a lot from that area. And when you just live in the insular photography space and just watch photography tutorials, there's a lot you can miss. Um, photographers kind of have a specific way of working. Here's a simple example in terms of lighting. Photography is often much more front lit. Like the the sort of standard setup for like a normal working photographer, a lot of the time they'll walk in with some kind of soft light source and put it right in the front of the subject, maybe a little off to the side. So there's some shape and shadows, but for the most part, like it's really bright on the person. And I think you may not start looking into more like rear lit scenarios unless you start paying attention to what movies are doing or more cinematic lighting styles where it's less common or maybe less preferred in a lot of situations to just fully light from the front. I don't know. Do you have anything you can <laughs> teach me about what I might be doing better if I pay more attention to me? <laughs> I don't know if I could de- teach anything, but my wife is a professional photographer and I was a professional cinematographer. So this, you know, that concept is definitely forefront in my mind as I've been the technical support on many, many photo shoots and 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 still and still do for her. I set, you know, help set them up and do that. I, I think a lot of it comes down to economics. I'm like the economics DP, unfortunately. It's probably like the boring way to look at it, but like the business approach and like the economics of what it is you're doing with your photography or your cinematography. You know, a portrait photographer, their job is to, you know, capture a portrait of a person and you typically want to see both of their eyes. Like that's Mm -hmm. just like this unsaid thing that like if if you let one side go dark, it's like uh, this starts to not, you know, tick the the boxes (laughs) of the parameters that you're being hired for. And so right. you're you're only gonna go so far into darkness because it's like you're you're there to provide a portrait, you know. In most cases, in a hundred out of a hundred times, you you, you want to see them, see their faces. Where a cinematographer, you're there to broadly tell the story. And there's typically, you know, say even in a commercial, like say like ten shots, fifteen shots. So you have a little bit more room to do something a little bit more abstract and, and in full silhouette. And eventually, you probably see their face too, but you know, with photography, even if it's a series, like you might be going for a cover, you might be going for like a, you know, print ad or like an Instagram post. And it's, you have one shot usually. So it's like, yeah. it's, it's harder to be like, let's shoot them in complete silhouette. It's like, that's probably not going to work just from like an economics level. Whereas a commercial, it's like, oh, cool. Let's start out. Sil- let's start in a, you know, fully silhouette, moody shots at the tone. And then we cut to the close up. You yeah, know, they like gradually they, they, reveal more. Yeah, they have the narrative. They have time. You know, photographers don't have time to work with. They can't build up to it. It's like if you're hired to do a product shot of an iPhone, you better show the iPhone. If you're shooting the commercial <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. iPhone, you can start in the wide shot of where is this iPhone being used. Then it's like a shot of like who's the person using it. 
and it's like all those shots, the phone is kind of like dark and obscured, but then is then you eventually see it. So you have this, you know, this timeline that you can get. Photographer doesn't get that. They're like, hit me with the photo shot. <laughs> hit me with a shot right now. It's funny because depending which area I'm working in, like, oh, you know, sometimes I'm switching between photography and video on the same job. And if I do a lot of the video first, I find it hard to turn my brain back on to the photo version where it's like, this all you have to make this really interesting in one frame and tell the whole story. Mm. And it's interesting because there are a lot of things about filmmaking that are much more challenging, like technically more challenging. You have more things to do. There's more frames per second. You know, th- th- it can be a longer checklist of like, here's what we need to get done for this to be a product in the end. But sometimes that creative challenge of like, okay, but you only have one moment to express your whole concept. I can find I can find it hard to switch back to that mode of thinking and almost be tempted to do the more the more boring thing, which in, in video, like you have you always end up with a few boring shots that are just they just need to be there to move things along mm-hmm. and they're not super interesting. Filler content like that in photography uh, usually gets cut. So Yeah, and it's like Again, with my wife being a photographer, it's like, uh, for some reason, I cannot shoot still photographs. Like, if if you put me with an actor or a model and it was like, cool, take their photo, I can't do it. Right. I don't know when to push the trigger. Whereas my wife, that's like, that is what she does. Like, she knows how to talk to them, get them to emote somehow, and then knows when to shoot it. Whereas, you know, I, I'm not the director. I don't, I don't really talk to the actors like one-on-one. I'm like, no, you know, like, sometimes it might be like, okay, just turn your head a little bit this way, something like that, something that, you know, is, is between us. It's like, okay, you know the lights over here, right? Like, so you should probably, you know, I'll give like a tiny hint, but, the, you know, I'm not the director. I don't, I don't talk to them. So I'm used to just kind of, I set the lighting. Yeah. That, that, that separation. I just yeah. set the lighting. It doesn't exist in the same way. Well, that's, I mean, it's interesting that like you have both of them happening in your household. I guess now is the only kind of filmmaking you're doing is is YouTube like do you do anything else or creative work or is it all inside the computer now? At this point we are 100% in the computer. Yeah. I don't know how you'd have time to do anything else cuz this seems like an enormous project but Yeah, I I mean it's fun like I get offers now. It's it's crazy like some some amazing ones, you know, cuz you know the visibility of all the projects I've done hasn't hurt my career. It's just that mm-hmm. I, I just choose not to do them at this point. Like it's, it's, it's hard for me to go back and do client work because I don't own it and I can't talk about it. You know, like the best work I do, I, I can't take a picture. I can't share it. It may never come out because that's yeah. the nature yeah, of advertising. Yeah. They'll just kill a whole campaign. And it's like you still get paid like crazy, but it's like you, you don't own it. And so I've been for the last four years, I own everything I do. And it's, it's now just hardwired into what I do. It's if I can't share it and and build something that's, you know, for me at the end of the day, it's it's really hard for me to do it, even if they're like some incredible projects I've been offered lately. I mean, that intersection is really interesting to me because it's covered a bit in that recent video I did about kind of upgrading my camera and being interested into moving into somewhat more traditional cinematography because, uh, you know, my wife and I run our business together and we've had a few clients lately that are more, you know, just normal filmmaking jobs. And I think the two, the two of us represent those different views of like, I get excited at the idea of working on a bigger set and being part of a bigger team mm-hmm. and creating something that looks like the movies, you know, it looks like when I go to the theater. And, you know, she'll often say to me, like, well, you know, as you do that, you you get less, you kind of not get less credit, but you take less ownership of it. And some of the things that you're saying right now, and I don't know, that's interesting to hear that after you've been doing it for a while, you still think of it that way. Because I would love to be able to make things that look 
as good as the movies, but I'd, it would probably be somewhat of a challenge to kind of let go of the way that I do it right now, which is to just shoot whatever the hell it is I want and uh, have no checks or balances over my bad ideas. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the dynamic and it's cross-industry, really. Yeah, like, there's a certain craftsmanship and quality you can hit by being, like, a single developer or, or filmmaker or artist. And, you know, to scale any higher requires teamwork and teamwork is delegation and then you you quickly go from being like the artist to the manager. And I think that's a big difference between cinematographers who work on smaller projects is like you you probably moved the lights yourself. You probably yep. set up the camera <laughs> yourself. The commercials I'm on, I don't touch the camera very much. I would never touch a light. That would be like ridiculous for me. You'd go to jail for that. It'd be, it's, it's, not, it's not like it's not allowed. <laughs> it'd just be, it'd be a waste. It doesn't of, happen. It'd be a waste of time. And my right. energy, you know, it's like, so yeah. you become a manager because instead of it being like you and like one or two other people moving everything around, it's like, okay, now I've got 10 or 15 people who are doing the lighting and they have a manager. So it's more like I'm managing their manager and yeah. then the, the camera team's the same. If there's four cameras and four operators and four first ACs, I have nothing to do with like the actual hands-on or what follow focus are you using and like all that stuff. It's like, it's no, it's like, okay, what do you tell these four camera operators vision-wise, to get them to all do what it is we're looking to get done here. And, you know, you have to trust the first AC is to make sure that it's, like, they have all the cables, they have all the batteries. And, like, you, it's, it's too, it's too, um, that's too micro for you to manage that kind of stuff. And it, you go from, you know, the person with the camera on your shoulder calling everything to the person sitting back and managing the people who are doing it. So there's, I think that that switch happens in any industry. And I'm dealing with it now as a developer because, like, for the last year, I've been the only programmer and artist <laughs> on CineTracer, but we're yeah, getting crazy to me. We're getting to the size now where it's like, okay, it's actually getting irresponsible that I'm the only one. Because I, as I go to do business development things and I'm speaking and presenting, it's like, well, no one's programming back home. This is bad. So, well, yeah, you're you're busy podcasting. What are you doing? <laughs> you're missing out on programming time. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm getting to the point now with this project where we're going to have to expand and. It's the same thing. Like I used to be a DP with a camera on my shoulder and then I became the DP directing the photography and it's, it's kind of happening again now with, with development. I'm like, I was like, I'm clicking the keyboard, but now it's like, okay, now I manage people that click the keyboards. That's probably the next step in the next like year or two. How you still managed YouTube in between all that, which uh, I can barely find time to just do that. So I kind of don't, I kind of didn't. <laughs> that's, oh yeah, right. That's true. That was it. And there's, you know, I mean, you've, you've spoken to a lot of YouTubers. I don't know how much you dig into the business side of it, but I, I know that pretty inside and out. It, for me, the financials didn't work. It was like, this is not, even if I did scale it, it's, it's not the work I want to do necessarily. Yeah. And it's not like financially what I want either. Like it won't, well, it won't give me the freedom that I'm looking for to be able to create things. I'm sure there's somebody listening that it'd be helpful to, to spell that out a little bit. Now, like I'll at least do it from my perspective. I know that when you see YouTubers, it seems like there's a lot of money coming from it. Like if you're a YouTuber with a decent size following, you're probably getting super rich from it. But AdSense money is very small. I mean, you know, I do make some amount of a paycheck each month from actual YouTube. Mm -hmm. But if you just look at the products that I'm talking about and the products that I'm reviewing and do the math of how much those products cost, you'll really quickly realize that it doesn't even come close to paying for the things that I'm talking about in videos. Um, like it's it's very far off. Like it's much more expensive just to have enough products to make it seem like I'm a tech channel. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, usually the, the, the primary way of making up for that, if you're not able to scale in your traffic enormously, is through sponsorships, which is the path mm-hmm. that I've gone down. Or otherwise, it would kind of be Patreon, or not specifically Patreon, but some kind of kind of a community-supported direct payment support kind of thing. But you know, you really do need to. What YouTube allows you to do is have a free, massive distribution system. Mm-hmm. But building that into a business is kind of up to you after, and it, it can be a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And you know, without my YouTube channel, my game would not have been such a success. You know, so it's it's. That was that was my pivot with it, and I think I've tried like pretty much all, not all, but like a lot of the different businesses that you can run over a YouTube channel, but the one that just really like creatively checked the boxes and financially too ended up being a game, which I had a, a talk with Chris Doe. Do you know Chris Doe from the future? No, I don't. Oh man, I'll, I'll connect you. That would be, I oh, think cool. you, you should definitely talk. Well, he, he start, I don't know if we started at the same time, but we were kind of he does design, okay? So he's like a designer, like agency level, like designer on like Xbox campaigns and stuff like that. And he has a YouTube channel now. It's very, very big. It's getting very large. He's got a team. And I forget what I'm talking about actually at the moment. But we, uh, <laughs> we kind of started at the same time and we just always talk about like just straight business. That's a lot of his podcast. And I remember like the day I switched to games, he was like, so you're, he's like, this is your movie. He's like, you're going to make a game now. I was like, yes, I'm fully committed in gaming. He was like, I don't understand that, but cool. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. and he's doing, you know, guest lecturing. And I have to look into like what his current business is, but we we've both kind of iterated through all the different ways that it can be done. I mean, just in terms of structure, I like the idea. I mean, this isn't what you're doing exactly, but I like the idea that in a way you can make the sponsor yourself instead of a third party company. It's like, you know, by building a growing audience, you're able to bring them towards some external avenue that is then able to bring you income. I mean, a common example, like popular examples now are presets or mm-hmm. tutorials or like training courses, things like that. Yep. Uh, both with which I'm experimenting with right now. I don't I have no idea if anything's going to work or if anything's going to stick. But, you know, you kind of did the more the more real path of it of like, you've got a very special product. Like this is, this is uncommon. Nobody else is going to invest this kind of work to create this kind of game uh, without being very serious about it. It's a, it's a challenge to just dive in there. So you're not going to have a lot of other YouTubers creating their own uh, cinematography games. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's going to be good for you. You probably know better than I do, but. Oh, it's going great. I mean, so like I went through, I think I went pretty quickly through it and I was lucky to meet Marquez and, and a lot of the YouTubers, like, you know, your crossover as well. It's like the, the YouTubers are very interested in filmmaking like it's always the question it's like oh should i you know people who have success on youtube i think almost all of them have reached out to me at one point when i was doing it like bigger they were like they're like so how's like the real film industry like should i stop doing youtube and go into the film industry i've talked to so many youtubers who have asked that question mostly i say no i'm like you you probably should not do that Mm -hmm. but you know i I went through all the different business models within youtube the, the, the traditional ones and it's again it being sponsorship based i've worked with a lot of the you know, a lot of the film companies. And it, to me, it, it kind of turned back into client work. I was like, oh, I'm literally delivering videos for clients. They just happen to be filmmaking clients now. And I have my distribution channel. And I was like, this is too, too close to what I was doing before now. And with the success, even early on now with Cinetracer, it's the other way where like, I can sponsor YouTubers. I can sponsor streamers. Right. Like that's, that's the change. I went from like, I was looking for sponsorships to now I'm looking to give out sponsorships. So it's a, it's a different, 
a different flip. And I, and I kind of wanted to be on that side of the fence, you know, like I kept trying to like, and I did, I was like, let's have dinner with Ari. And I did it in AB. And then I met Red and then I met everybody. I met like the entire film industry. And I was like, I was like, I would rather be one of you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Than do the sponsorship. So I, I, I just ducked down hard and I was like, let me, let me try to make this product. And, and I see you're in a good place because you kind of have a beat on like what's current, what's happening, maybe where there's a deficit in the industry, like, so, like a need or a problem. So you're in a good place. And then, like you said, if you have the audience too, you know what the problem is and you can make the solution. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to be. And, you know, we see that with, um, it's Caleb, right? Who's doing the, um, I was about to say, yeah, Caleb's totally doing the same thing. Yeah, with the with the Flippod, and he has. Uh, I'm sorry, who's the business guy he works with? I used to follow uh, him. Switchpod, uh, Pat Flynn. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I used to listen to Pat like when I was first starting my um, starting my company, and like that's that's a great move, you know. And I'm super interested to see what Peter McKinnon turns it into, and that's a lot. When I talk to a lot of the YouTubers, especially the ones who have gotten success recently, is kind of like. At a certain point, the energy may die a little bit. It's like it's so much energy, right, to, to do this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so what would your, like, retirement plan look like? What would you, you know, could you be an Andrew Kramer? <laughs> yeah, vlogging daily isn't a retirement plan. Right. It's, it's a good thing to build, but you might want to build it into something. So I, I always try to look at, especially, like, the younger YouTubers, and it's like, so what are you going to build? Like, imagine if Marquez came out with a product. Like, it would be like. For sure, yeah. It would be ridiculous. It's like, he'd come out with, like, a straight phone, right? And it's like. <laughs> Okay, well, they're going to sell a lot of that phone. You know, yeah, so. it's it's just matte black. That's, that's oh, it would, <laughs> on all sides, matte black screen. I'll buy the first. I'll buy the first three editions. Like no yeah. question. Like no, I don't need to see specs. I don't care. Give it. I'll I'll take it. And I'm not I'm not the only one. So yeah, the the business side of it is has always driven me, and still and still does. And, and YouTube's such a fun space, and Instagram too is is inc- is incredible lately. I think Instagram has really taken a lot of the focus from. From what I used to put into YouTube, I, I pretty much put it into Instagram at this point. On the story side or photography or both? Or? I, I think the community is is a lot of it. Like the DM structure is really nice. I use that quite a bit. Like I'll never respond to your email. Oh, yeah. That's how we talked. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like just there's just something fluid about that. You know, they took what Twitter did with DMs and kind of loosened it up a little bit. And then, you know, combined with like following stories, which are a little bit more personal and then now that you can reshare stories is incredible for my company. Someone makes something cool with my product, they tag me, boom, I share it. It's like, and that just feels like a community. You know, on YouTube, if, if someone uses my game, would they have to make a YouTube video about it? And I would share that, but maybe they don't want to take, because YouTube takes a lot of time. Whereas Instagram is a much faster creation and digestion process. Like it's consumed much faster. And I've just found that for the, for the film industry, that's just more in line with what they have it's it, it you know i mean how much time does it take to produce a video people think it's like oh you made a five minute video what did that take you like a day you know it's like no it's like that no, we shot this for like you know I sc- you know i don't know three how long days it yeah. yeah it's it's too you, long you script it you got to shoot it you have to edit it the music all the things it's like that's a lot of work you got to plan it out in cine tracing yeah <laughs> but like, yeah like, like instagram it's like oh i made it you know that could still take a little bit of time but it's kind of like we were talking before it's like YouTube has the narrative. It has multiple shots. Whereas Instagram's like, let's just take the best photo. And that seems to gel with people who have a little bit less time. This episode is brought to you by a new sponsor, Plot Devices. Founded in 2017 by filmmaker Seth Worley, Plot Devices makes tools that helps writers and directors develop their stories, like the Story Clock Workbook and the Storyboard Notebook. Designed for screenwriters, the Story Clock Workbook helps you turn your ideas into stories 
by picturing your story like a clock and using symmetry to extract new ideas from what you already have. When you get stuck, the inside covers of the workbook are full of writing resources like general story structure and genre variations for quick reference. And because there's more to your story than just the plot, there's a whole set of tools and exercises that'll help you thoroughly rip off your inspiration. Figure out any exploitable resources you have and determine your weaknesses so you can lean into them. And I know some of you might have gone to film school, so you have some of these story structure ideas memorized. Personally, I don't remember any of this stuff, so it's really helpful to have a cheat sheet I can just flip back to and look at whenever I need. In Design for Directors, the storyboard notebook is made to sketch out your short ideas so you can arrive on set ready to work. There's no skill required, just vision. Every 16 by 9 board has labels to help you stay organized, checkboxes to indicate how the camera should be mounted, and a description field to make sense of your stick figures. Simply draw, notate, and repeat. Because if you can draw a stick figure, you can plan a shot list. And you might be saying, what if I can't draw a stick figure? Because that's me, but that, you'll do fine. <laughs> Just sketch something in there. But honestly, shot lists help a lot. I even do it for YouTube videos that should be straightforward, but it's so helpful to know what you're shooting before you start. And I want to be clear that when I'm saying workbook and notebook, I mean these in the traditional meanings of the word. They are physical paper little booklets, just like you would have used in elementary school. So very simple and friendly ways to write down your ideas with an actual pen or pencil. They're not digital millennialism apps. They're physical pages of paper attached together so that you can flip through and use in real life. To learn more about Story Clock Workbook and Storyboard Notebook at plotdevices.co, that's plotdevices.co, and get 20% off your first order with the code STALMAN20. That's S-T-A-L-M-A-N-2-0 at checkout. And look, even if you're not planning to shoot your first feature indie anytime soon, which, I mean, I'm not, this kind of stuff is really helpful to think about story structure and plan before you start shooting. You can also go to the Plot Devices blog where they analyze story structure from some favorite movies like Back to the Future. Great company, great people making a really cool product. So again, go to plotdevices.co, use offer code STALMAN20, and thanks again to Plot Devices for supporting the show. I reached out to Twitter and just said, hey, we're going to do this podcast and said, does anybody have any questions? So can I hit you up with one that uh, just came through? Yeah, sure. Olaf says, how do you balance giving back to the community, reviews, plugins, apps, versus your own creative ambition as a filmmaker, cinematographer, or are they one and the same? I mean, we've been covering some of that stuff, but do you still have ambitions as a filmmaker yourself, other than streaming (laughs) your development process? Not really. I, I've, I'm kind of taking a backseat at this point to building tools. Like I get a lot out of watching people make something with what I've made, like making the tool. And I've always been fascinated by that. And that's like the first product I made. It's still what I make. That's, that's what drives me still at this point. I don't really feel like jumping back into the, like, like actually producing content like a film or anything like that. It's not really... It's not of that much interest to me anymore. I did it for a while. Maybe with like the right collaborator, that would be fun. And, and I've been meeting some like r- ridiculous people with this game, just like going to conferences and it's, the people I've been meeting is incredible. But I, I don't think I'd ever be their cinematographer at this point. Like these are like the Bradford Youngs and, you know, like mm-hmm. the people that they work with is so high. But like that's, it's what it comes down to in filmmaking because it's such, it's so collaborative. It's like, Cinematographer Matt Workman on his own is is meaningless. I have I can't do anything, right? I require like this massive <laughs> infrastructure behind me, and then a director, which is the most important. And right? it's like I need a collaborator. So it's kind of what happens towards the, I think at like kind of like the 
higher end, so to say. It always feels weird to say that, but like, you know, the higher end stuff, it's like, it's not about like how well you shoot, right? This is almost like irrelevant. It's more like, how do you gel with like these high end, like, a, you know, a high end director, a director that's going to be able to convince a studio to spend, you know, a hundred million. Right. Can you, can you work with them? Right. It's, that's yeah, what your yeah, job yeah. is like. You, because you don't even really light at that point. Like it's, like, I mean, you're you're there lighting, and you have like the feeling, but like you have such huge teams under you. You're really just there to talk to like the director. Yeah. So if I if I had someone like that, if a director was like who I I like I liked their work, and it seemed like we could get along, was like I have this project, and I want you to do it. Maybe because it's like some weird hybrid virtual cinematography thing. Like I think you're the one, and I had enough money saved up, so I was like, if it, you know, I don't, I would just do it as like a passion thing. Then I would do it, but. I like building tools right now. Is anybody going to make a whole film in Cinetracer? Is that a thing that you're going to see someday? I mean, not that you're building those tools, but like, I don't know. Is that a thing? Yes. Yeah, 100%. It, cool. doesn't, look, it doesn't look it now, but the, yeah. the term is virtual production and, it, and it's slowly coming to the mainstream. But that is the kind of like second wave of the, of the app is that you produce exclusively in it. Because I know people have done it with, well, you'll know the other games that have done it, and I haven't played them as much. What's the shooter game that has an animation platform? Overwatch, a lot of people animate. Oh, sure. I think there's... It's Machinima. It's been happening forever. They, they make films in Minecraft. They make films in uh, Half-Life and Source Filmmaker, and Fortnite Creative is you know very close. Did you know that Fortnite Creative, this just came out, they're... For regular Fortnite, they're doing the World Cup, they're calling it, and it's $100 million over the year for the prize pool. They're doing it for Fortnite Creative now, too. So there's a $3 million, pri- there's a $3 million prize for the top Fortnite Creative. So what are the models and stuff in Fortnite Creative? Like, are you just kind of using Fortnite characters to, to create stuff, or can you import external things? I haven't looked at Fortnite Creative at all. For, for them, it's like you're building, you're building buildings. You're building, like, cool levels you're not like making films in it you're just though they did do that competition too so you know it's why epic games and i get along really well we have a very similar vision of it and production a lot of it is going virtual like that and and i see you know my input into that system having been a traditional cinematographer as like important and that's that's another aspect of what i'm doing is that as production does go virtual there's very few real world cinematographers who can even be in that conversation. So I, I see that as like a big part of what I do. And it's why, it's kind of what I speak on. Like I'm speaking at FMX, which is a conference most filmmakers probably don't know. It's a very visual effects and animation one, but we're doing uh, a whole track on virtual production and I'm showing the game. And then there's people that did virtual production for like really big movies and that sort of thing. So that's a, that's a whole nother wing. And if you're like, you know, a photographer, or like a casual filmmaker, that stuff is still very, I think, abstract and, and future Like Steven Spielberg does it, but like, Normal people don't, but that is eventually going to be distilled down. Yeah, I'd love to see it get into the 3D stuff be more accessible to YouTubers, for example. So there was one video on my iPhone X that I had a friend Chris Dowsett do with 3D rendering of the iPhone X for the opening sequence. And he used Cinema 4D and it looks, you know, real. It looks very photorealistic. But it was was a ton of work for him. Mm -hmm. took a lot of time. I think it'd be really fun to be able to, like, do certain things relatively quickly that, um, you know, maybe aren't the same quality as what Steven Spielberg is doing, but are interesting and creative for mixing into all other forms of storytelling. I mean, all the stuff that we're getting to the gear to shoot the real world and make it look good has suddenly gotten much cheaper and more accessible. And I'm hoping we see more and more on that in the digital side as well. Yeah. And I definitely, and, and don't think I don't have the tech YouTuber in mind with, uh, the stuff that we build, I mean... Don't forget about us. 
Oh, I mean, you know them, I know them. It's it's a big part of it. I think just like the creative ecosystem moving forward. And I think just like you said, it's like if I can, oh, there's a new phone that comes out, and if we can quickly put that in the game, you can put it on a wooden, a nice digital wooden table with some perfect lighting, do a hover shot, and that's your B-roll. That's basically what these big tech companies do anyway. It's just you know, that would be so useful. <laughs> it's post rendered, and it's yeah. I mean, like that's a very limited use case, but it's also not difficult for me to add wooden tables and phones and have it be like so that you can input whatever graphics you want. A more common use case would be uh, like something that you can use more often is when you're demonstrating how to use an app and that the app is more than just a still photo where you've superimposed the screen mm-hmm. and that's your attempt to kind of put it in the real world. So it's either shooting your hand to actually use it or you just leave the phone on a desk and then put a screen over the screen. But in 3D, you can do so much more with that, right? So if you're demonstrating things moving around, you know, you could do whole tutorials in 3D, stuff like that. Oh, there's there's a lot. Have you ever heard of Draw with Jazza? No, but I'm going to Google it right now. Yeah, so like there's a lot of augmented reality and virtual production opportunities for YouTubers specifically. And the game that's, the first game to capitalize on that is Beat Saber. Yeah, I've been playing that. Have you Have you seen like the augmented reality Beat Saber streamers? Like you can see them in the actual game. I don't understand how they're doing that. Right, it's with live, and so that's that's the world that I, I'm very much in right now. We don't we don't publish a lot of stuff on on, you know, what's happening in that space, but with the convergence of esports eclipsing actual sports and viewers and money, which is will be in our lifetime, and then YouTube YouTubers and streamers, virtual production and, and doing that, being able to see the streamers in the game is like it's a big push happening from a lot of different companies, and I'm. I'm at that crossover at that point. And so for tech YouTubers, for game streamers, which is the big category, there's just a huge opportunity to combine games, graphics, like seeing... Yeah, no, that sounds so cool. Right, so like those are those are the things that are coming. It's a little techie, it's a little game, you know, gamery, but like, so if, again, if you're like, if you're like into like traditional photography, that stuff probably sounds kind of like, eh, but it's, these are markets that are emerging and that's where... I like to be. And it's like this fun, amazing crossover of tech, gaming, and filmmaking is 2019. And it's like, this is like quite the, quite the year with what's happening. Well, I think if you like creating stuff, it is so worth it to not, not be scared off by this. Um, it doesn't mean you have to dive in. doesn't mean you have to buy all the gear because you know it's probably going to change by the time it becomes mainstream. If you buy the gear now, it may not last. So what I think is really useful for anybody that is you know doing traditional production, which, you know, I am, but to maintain like a healthy interest in the next step in it will make you happier in the years to come. Because, you know, I know the guys that were already felt settled and comfortable in the photography world back when it was all shot on film and stock photography wasn't a big industry and everything was custom and you'd, you know, get a great paycheck just for showing up and doing the basics. Mm -hmm. And then everything changed, digital came out, and it was really, really frustrating for people that didn't embrace it. Whereas people that had their eye, like even older guys like or, and girls, like you don't have to be, it's not an age thing. It's an attitude thing towards being interested and open to these new avenues. And the people that are open to it will have so much more fun in their life instead of fighting against the, the, like the, the path of where things are going and what people are interested in. And uh, yeah, no, I, even though I'm not skilled at any of this yet, I think it's so worthwhile to stay at least open to it, if not excited about it. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think for the established people, success can blind you. Like 
100%. It's like, this is how I make my money. This is how things work. Anything that's not this is losing me money. That's like what... Yeah, it's a threat. Your approach becomes that. But then as the economics do change, you, you've become close to that. You're like, in my, in my time, it was like film versus digital, which is probably an absurd thing that people would even fight that. But in my generation, that was a huge, quote unquote, battle. You know, if you weren't shooting like it was film, you know, like for the people that were established in that, which are like my heroes, right? It's it, when I was a cinematographer, that's, that's the way that they did it. So to do it differently is almost like, it's like sacrilege. It's like, this is not the way and it's also not the business, but then eventually it does become that. If you get too stuck in like, this is how I make my money to, to see what's coming towards you and what's happening like economically, that can be a huge problem. And I actually faced that when I was like, when I went from 100% traditional cinematography to trying to make YouTube videos, I was blindsided by how much had changed since I had kind of like left to like the real world. Cause like commercial cinematography is a very <laughs> weird niche, like space to be in. And it's like, you know, we do very specific things and the money is different there to come back to like what normal person production looks like. It was just like blindsiding to me. Like it's, it's For still sure. it, like, and I've done sponsored videos with the, but like um, the fact that people were using Sony A7S's for cameras, I was like, that's not a camera. Like, that's not, I was like, what do you mean? That's like, and it took me so long to get culturally back in tune with like where the quote unquote kids were. Cause like everything, yeah, everything that I knew versus what YouTube was at the time, I was like, this YouTube stuff is not right. Like that is not how it works. But, yeah. I, but I was wrong. Like I was 100% wrong. Like I was stuck in this like tiny niche of the film industry it's like thousands, like a thousand people, a couple thousand. It's very small. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When the reality was like, no, look at YouTube. Look at how all these people are producing content and making money. And, you know, my education process came through meeting Marquez, meeting Casey Neistat, and just having, just having that wash over me, learning about, at the time, Snapchat and Twitch and all that stuff. You know, like I was very much like fixed in my way. It's like, this is how it's done. And, you know four years of basically being reeducated by like how the world works now has been uh, pretty interesting. No, that's one thing that kills me is I've, I've heard so many people and even Marquez said it on his recent studio tour that the stuff that he's using, the, the fact that he, you know, has multiple reds and all this gear and all these lights is overkill. It's like a really, that's a lot of the time people go to that word when they look at his setup and the kind of gear that he, and the kind of effort that he's putting into making these videos look amazing. I hate that word, but yeah. And, and same with, and you know, not to only give Marquez the credit, I mean, obviously Jonathan Morrison's doing it and many others that I'm not thinking of right now. Everybody is doing amazing production quality. Do you know how many people are watching these videos? Like it's bigger than network television. Like this isn't fun and games. This is like, this is huge. The amount of cell phones that get sold because oh, yeah. Marquez says something good about it. Like this is really, really part of big business. This is becoming major mainstream media. And to think that they should be using small cameras because they're a smaller crew is just really confusing what YouTube is culturally, like the impact that it has on the world that is like, it's, it's outside of the scale that you would think just glancing at it. And yeah, to, to think that it's overkill to make it look as good as it does, I think it's totally misunderstanding the future of video production. Oh, it, it, it um, is. And not that you need it. You totally don't need the stuff. But it, it is the business. And coming from the games industry, which I've recently been in, Twitch, you know, it's like kind of like the bigger fish for them. I mean, YouTube's still a huge part as well, but Twitch is like very much the focus. Mm -hmm. It is the business. 
it doesn't matter your market spend. Like if you're a game coming out or you're, we could say like a movie, but game specifically, it doesn't matter if you're the biggest game company, you have like, you know, 20 million ad spend for something like this, right? Like, so what do we buy? Money's no object. What, what celebrity do we hire to put in our commercials? You'll never do better than Ninja ever. It doesn't matter <laughs> right. how much money you yeah. spend. You'll never yeah. engage better than him. And same thing with a phone, <laughs> like with Marquez. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much, how sexy that commercial is or if like the biggest movie stars in the world are like, I love this phone. It doesn't matter. It really, yeah. it, that does not move the needle and all the industries know this at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not everything <laughs> by any means, but they're, the, they're a significant portion in every single I met I met hundreds of game developers. Every game developer thinks about which Twitch streamer they're going to work with. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. that is the process now. Like, will my game look good on Twitch? What kind of Twitch streamers are going to play it? And and you know, I I'm not sure that like I'm trying not to say a certain tech company. I'm not sure that like you know X company is like oh we should design it so that Marquez likes it, mm-hmm. but they might also be thinking it at this level. I mean, yeah. you can't buy those ads. Like, it doesn't work like that anymore. Just like a a nameless commercial on television or where, wherever you watch commercials, like a pre-roll ad. It's like, that's not convincing me of anything. I'm going to go, mm-hmm. before I buy a phone, I'm going to go watch like 50 videos on it and guess who comes up first. I mean, like, and social proof is how the world works now. It's like, oh, the one that has 50 million views, I'll probably be heavily swayed by what that person says and what the comp, you know, the top 10 comments. Like that is 100% how commerce is working right now. I think a clear example of it is the success of the 1DX as a video camera. (laughs) I think entirely because of Peter McKinnon. (laughs) Because like, this isn't a video camera. This was never supposed to be a video camera. It doesn't make, like, it makes good videos. They look nice, but it doesn't make any sense to choose this camera. It's a a very strange choice. And it's fine for somebody to choose that. Like, if it works for Peter, that's cool. But it's become successful in a wider audience because there's this desire to emulate what they're seeing or like, you know, it works for Peter, it'll work for me. And we all, you know, I fall prey to that too. Like I'm not saying, it's not the flaw of people watching the videos. It's it's just an example of like, even if it's a really weird choice as a a filmmaking tool, people will gravitate to what the people that they respect are using. And, you know, if you look at what, same with, you know, what Casey Neistat's using, I'm sure if you work in a camera store right now, the number one question you probably get is like, what's that What's that camera that Casey Neistat uses again? Oh, 100%. 100%. Luckily, they have Amazon affiliates that they just tell you. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and they make the they make the sale of, oh yeah, one, 100%. And it's always been like that. People like to, you know, it's like, you feel safer because it's like, oh, well, they're doing it. It's doing it's doing well. And I still do that because I'm, I'm kind of out of the camera game and the lens game. Like, that doesn't really affect my my day-to-day and my business but i still hop on youtube and i'm like i mean like to be absolutely honest i was watching your video on the apple iWatch, and i was like that looks pretty slick i'll probably grab that and same thing i was like as i'm diving into the apple ecosystem deeper at the moment i have to know what's going on so i watched the ipad i um you know the airbuds i can't even know the other name <laughs> airbuds yeah <laughs> you gotta watch some more videos it's it's been a minute but like you know all that stuff is like i i do the same thing even if i you know and it's with cameras, with lights, with everything. It's like, that's that's where I go. And, and the shiny videos that have a lot of views, I mean, they pull a lot of weight, you know? And like their their word means so much more because of the consistency of it than like some like commercial that has no lifespan. You know, it's like like a 10 million views, but they're all sponsored views, right? So it's like oh, yeah, 10 million yeah, views totally. with 500 likes or something like that. And <laughs> that sort of stuff, like... Yeah, that's that's how it's going down. Okay, well, if I could, if I could get one more quick topic out of you. Your software runs using realistic lighting situations is it using real 
gear? Like, uh, so speaking of making purchase decisions, are there real cameras in this? Real lenses? Real lights? Well, they're not real, but so we're we're looking to we're looking to emulate as close as possible reality, so it it feels like natural to a filmmaker, right? Then, like we're not we're not trying to use words that are just for CG. We we translate all the three D stuff to real world filmmaking, and our goal is to put every single real world light, every single camera lenses is a, is a tricky subject, but have that stuff represented in the actual game. It's to scale. It's going to work very similar as it is right now. No. But my last plugin had about, I think, 200 different lights and pieces of equipment, all the scale. And the goal with this project, because this project is just like 100 times the scale of that already at this point, is I think we're going to get everything. And so that's a slow process of working with companies because I can't just put Aries IP in my game. It's a a business relationship that's slowly being worked out. So as as we smooth that out and we become more of a force in the industry, that is the goal, to have everything represented. And it's like, it'll seem weird that you didn't do it. It's like, yeah, of course. We have exactly what we're going to do here, and we have every piece of gear down to like the cabling if you wanted to go there. That's what we want. Well, here's why I ask, is that a big challenge as a independent filmmaker is that you only really know the gear that you end up working with, mm-hmm. right? So if you're deciding, you know, which light am I going to buy? I'm going to buy an Aperture 120D because all the other people I'm watching are also using it. They say good things about it. Then I try it and I'm pretty happy with it. But I don't know what else is out there. Like, I don't know what I don't know. So something really appealing about this is that I'd be able to build experimental kits for myself. Like, you know, would it make more sense for me to spend a few thousand dollars? Because all of this money is like really significant to a small filmmaker, right? You're not renting it. You can't test it out for the most part. You can't test out everything for the day. So you kind of need to commit and then and then make it work for you. So what I imagine doing is, you know, choosing like, would I rather have a kit of five single point light sources that are all at various levels of power and then putting, you know, different types of diffusion grids and stuff in front of it? Or would I be better off having a series of panels that I can get uh, low profile to the ceiling? And that that's something so just personally that I'd find really exciting is being able to sort of experimentally shop of like, is this the kind of gear that I should be moving towards? Is this going to work with the way that I create videos? Cause I can only buy so much stuff in the end, you know? I wish I could say that it could do that. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think that's really going to be possible. Like real world lights and cameras have infinite nuance. And it's, it's like truly my field of study at the moment is how to best recreate this stuff in 3d and it's it's really much more of a broad stroke uh, with the representation. It's still a good one. It still works for visualization. But really, at the end of the day, behind the scenes, all of the lights, we do some like big category changes. Like if it's like a big soft light versus like a spotlight, that's a very clear thing. But they're pretty similar. Well, so in, even an example for me, like right now, I'm like, okay, I need some bigger diffusion in my life. How much will a four foot versus eight foot versus 12 foot diffusion panel look in, in like what will the effect be on a source could i see something like that kind of effect yes yeah so softness which is a, a tricky word when you come down to the, like the science of what that means but that is that is currently represented at like i'd say like a five out of ten for accuracy but in the next year it's going to get a lot better there's a lot of new lighting changes that are like you know we see like rtx and ray tracing being thrown out mostly in the gaming space i don't know if that makes it yeah, into the tech yeah. industry as much we're doing that and we're using that tech. So all of that stuff, all that marketing, it's amazing for us. That basically just means that the lighting is more realistic. Every time 
you see that? That's what we're using. Yeah, well, there was just that PS5 announcement that ray tracing's going to be supported, so it'll be in consoles. And Oh, that's, that's what I'm saying. For me, 2019, with that being live, has been everything I've been wanting like my whole life. Is like, it, <laughs> yeah. it used to be to have, to have the, the stuff that we're going to put in the game to do that before. I know because I sold and made those products. It's like, cool, let's get like a $5,000 computer, minimum $3,000 <laughs> software, plus a new <clears throat> rendering engine, plus you have to learn it. And then you're probably going to have to wait like 10 minutes per frame. All happens now on like, it's still a fairly expensive computer, but like in real but time. it happens. Happens yeah. in real time. And so we just wait for like a couple more years and there's a lot of tech companies jumping into this space. I'll just say that much. You wait five years and it's just going to be like seamless. And it's like, yeah, you'll be moving around in a photorealistic 3D environment as much, you know, oh, as smoothly as wait. you would, you know, swipe between photos on like your, on your iPhone or something like that. That's why I'm trying to be in it now and just kind of build for it. Cause it's still like bleeding edge. Like it just came out. Like I can just start to put this together. Which is exciting. Mm -hmm. It's like the red just coming out. No, that's like the right time. And I'm sure we've all seen the behind the scenes of Avatar where they're using like the virtual camera in virtual space and dreaming of like, yeah, what if I could just put on my PSVR goggles or my Oculus or whatever it is and experience your lighting environment like that. That is really exciting. Yeah. Not that that's what you're doing right now, but you know, give it a few years. I think it'd be great. Yeah. It's, I mean... It's it's why and, and tech and uh, that's why I love like you know the content you're making you know tech and filmmaking and image making it's like it, it's interesting because like I think it, I think that virtual filmmaking when it's done right can scratch the same wait is it itch the same scratch or scratch the same itch I, don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't I can't remember at the moment both work for me but there, there's something about doing focus in cinetrace not, not this is like a sales pitch but like like. Now that the the focus and the bokeh are physically accurate, which is brand new, it's very new that it that, that it's this accessible. It starts to re- feel like real photography again, and it starts to like I don't know. It changes the way that that I look at things as well. Like I, I used to want to make video games and do virtual worlds, like things that don't exist, right? You know, but that wasn't very fun ten years ago. That was pretty bad mm-hmm. doing three D. So I went into the real world, and it was a lot more fun. But you you start to you know, the, the longer you do real filmmaking, this, the more you start to like realize like what the limitations of the real world are. And it's beautiful. And those limitations are the real world. And there's uh, incredible things you can do, but you need light and you need real people. And you need these things that are very expensive and difficult to put together. Even with experienced teams of people, they can still completely botch it. It's still mm-hmm. a very nuanced thing. So for me, I, I really want to be able to create environments where like someone alone, like a YouTuber, can have access to like full photorealism and just create, you know, like savant style alone and end up with something that is photorealistic and is like a real world film, you know? And I think that, I, th- I hope that it's within my lifetime and, that, and that's the tool I want to build. Well, I, I hope you do it because I'm going to be there watching closely and playing with it soon. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Matt. This has been, this has been very exciting for the future of filmmaking and games and, and all of it. But uh, thanks for showing us the way. Yeah, thanks for having me. I will be following your YouTube channel very closely. 